You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today at a time when mental health and mindset is more important than ever. Today, we're diving into a masterclass on the dual hormone and neurotransmitter, serotonin. So let's kick things off today, first and foremost, with the roles that it plays in our bodies. First and foremost, serotonin is a well-established natural mood stabilizer in our bodies. It plays critical roles in modulating stress, anxiety, depression, and more. Serotonin also helps to regulate our digestion. Its release in the gut stimulates intestinal motility and gets things moving along. Serotonin literally helps the ebb and flow of our digestion overall. We're going to talk more about that in this episode. Serotonin also plays a major role in memory formation. Specifically, studies published in the journal Neuron and the journal Science and many others have detailed how serotonin influences our autobiographical memory. So this is personal experiences with specific objects, people, events experienced at specific times and places, plus general facts about the world. So this is kind of important. Also, serotonin is well noted in the building of our spatial memory which is navigating one's environment and remembering the location of specific objects and events. Serotonin also has multiple roles in helping to regulate our sleep efficiency. Serotonin is the building block. It's a precursor for building melatonin, which is a well-noted sleep-regulating hormone. And serotonin is kind of like the opening act for melatonin's performance. It's kind of like the hype man for melatonin's sleep-relating abilities. And also within that, serotonin while sleeping helps to regulate and move us out of certain phases of sleep as well. So it has multiple impacts on our sleep efficiency. Very, very important. Now, so these are some of the things that serotonin is well established to do that seem very beneficial. But like with all things, too much of a good thing can turn into a bad thing. And so what happens when we have too much serotonin? Let's touch on that for a moment. Well, this is called serotonin syndrome. And typically it's brought on by medications that influence serotonin, which can cause a whole host of issues ranging from acute issues like nausea and headaches to chronic issues like reduced bone density and osteoporosis, right? Too much serotonin can create conditions where we have low bone density and even osteoporosis. So that tells you right there that serotonin, this neurotransmitter, and hormone has a big impact on our bone health. So really, really interesting stuff there. Also, we wanna keep this in context because too much serotonin is not the issue for most folks today. It's oftentimes today the issue is abnormalities with serotonin in the opposite direction, including serotonin deficiencies and inefficiencies, which low levels of serotonin in the cerebral spinal fluid, for example, is associated with increases in violence, insomnia, excessive hunger, suicide, and more negative associations. Partly because serotonin and its metabolite, melatonin, play a major role in mood, appetite regulation, the sleep centers of our brains and regulating our sleep quality, and so much more. Now, this is just touching on how powerful this hormone slash neurotransmitter is in our bodies, but it's important for us to always keep in mind that none of the compounds that the body creates operates in a vacuum. None of these things, if we're targeting just one thing, 
it's inherently going to affect everything else and everything else is inherently going to affect that one thing we're targeting. So let's take hormones, for example. Hormones are chemical messengers that communicate and send messages throughout all the cells in our bodies. All right, so it's kind of like these metabolic DMs, these direct messages that are going from cell to cell, communicating these messages, giving instructions, signaling behavior, signaling needs. And when these DMs are starting to flood with a particular hormone, for example, that can metaphorically cause things to start to go to spam and downregulate the sensitivity of that inbox for that particular hormone. All right, so we have to keep that in mind. Now, what if it's too low? What if the, what if the message doesn't make it? What if it's not whitelisted? All of these things happen and it can influence every other cell in the communication that's happening within the body. So we've really got to keep this in mind that if there's one hormone that is functioning abnormally, you can rest assured that there are other hormones upstream and downstream that are also functioning abnormally. All right, so I want to give that caveat before we dive in deeper today to understand that, again, even though we're targeting serotonin, none of these things operate in a vacuum. And so we're inherently going to be affecting the entire endocrine system and the nervous system with the things that we learned today. But we're highlighting this impact that serotonin has because, again, oftentimes it's coming along without an education when we talk about these different neurotransmitters and hormones. And although our hormones do not operate in a vacuum, serotonin has really emerged as a causative force in issues surrounding mental health today. For example, in our pharmacological targeting with SSRI, so serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So these are drugs that target the functionality of serotonin in our bodies with the overall hypothesis that it's a deficiency in serotonin that's causing so many issues. Not only that, so with the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, can effectively keep serotonin more active in our system by manipulating certain pathways. But again, this is through a synthetic pharmacological intervention. And we've got to understand these things are not operating in a vacuum. What is it doing with everything else? How is it affecting dopamine? How is it affecting GABA? How is it affecting our cortisol levels? How is it affecting our human growth hormone? The list goes on and on and on. When we're bringing in abnormal synthetic interventions, which can have their place, we often don't understand. When we hear that list of side effects, those are not side effects. Those are direct effects of bringing in a synthetic chemical that our body, the genes that we've evolved with, human DNA has never experienced throughout our entire evolution. And then bam, we've got this new synthetic intervention. We don't really know the long-term ramifications. And so although those things have our place, we want to look at what are the things that are clinically proven to enhance the performance and production of serotonin naturally? And that's what we're going to dive into today. First up, let's talk a little bit more about how serotonin is produced and stored within our bodies. Serotonin is primarily located in three areas in our bodies. One, within the central nervous system. Two, within the mucosa of the gastrointestinal tract, which is the largest producer of serotonin is actually in our gut. And three, within our blood platelets. Now, these are some of the places that serotonin is produced and stored within our bodies, but it has total body impact, of course. Now, what's the building block for serotonin? Well, serotonin is synthesized from the essential amino acid tryptophan, 
And it's called an essential amino acid because we need to get it from our diet. If we're not providing our body with the building block for serotonin, it can't make it. This is how important this amino acid is. And these are the things that are often neglected. Again, we bring in a pharmacological intervention and ignore like, okay, what is the building block to make serotonin in the first place? It's tryptophan. We're going to talk more about that as well. And so within the gut, by the way, serotonin is produced by the enterochromaffin cells within our gut. And upwards of about 90 to 95% of our body's serotonin is actually produced and stored within our gut. So this is another big revelation that's taken place within the last few years. Understand that we think that serotonin is associated primarily, again, with mood and regulating how we feel. We think it's a head thing, something going on within our brain, but so much of it is happening within our gut. There's a lot of action and activity determining how we feel happening within our belly. It's a gut feeling. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but I want to dive in deeper on this because this is a masterclass on this subject. Serotonin functions as both a hormone and as a neurotransmitter. So what does that mean? Hormones and neurotransmitters have some similar actions and they also have some important differences. So let's talk about how they're similar first. Well, first and foremost, both hormones and neurotransmitters function as messengers within our bodies, all right? They function as messengers sending data, sending information that drive performance, that drive activities. So both of these, hormones and neurotransmitters, function as messengers in the body. Also, both hormones and neurotransmitters strongly influence behavior, right? Both of these, hormones and neurotransmitters, strongly influence our behavior. And this is on the macro scale and the micro scale. So the macro scale is the things that we do in the world, the outpicturing of that. But on the micro scale, it's the, the actions and activities that are happening within the cells and tissues of our bodies, all the communication, all the activity and actions that are taking place behind the scenes. Also, both hormones and neurotransmitters are largely made of amino acids. This is how important protein is. These amino acids, these are the building blocks of protein. When we consume protein from our diet, our bodies break these down into amino acids that are then used to build our hormones and neurotransmitters. So again, if we're not getting adequate amounts of the right types of these building blocks from our diet, we're going to be struggling. And this is a very, very foundational level to make all of these compounds that our bodies need for us to have robust balanced, powerful health. Now, those are a few of the similarities between both hormones and neurotransmitters. Now let's take a look at how hormones and neurotransmitters differ. Number one, hormones are chemical signals secreted by our endocrine glands that go from there into the circulatory system, which convey regulatory messages within the body via that route. So our endocrine glands, right? These hormone producing glands within our bodies are the home base and the production center for our hormones. And then they're sent throughout our circulatory system. Neurotransmitters, on the other hand, are generated by the nervous system and they send signals across a chemical synapse from one nerve cell to the other, right? So these neurotransmitters are jumping from one nerve cell to another. That's their path that's their mode of transportation and communication is across 
the nervous system versus the circulatory system with what we see with hormones. Another difference is that neurotransmitters are generally transmitted much faster than hormones. Like this stuff is going at beyond the speed of light. This is like the flash. This is like quick silver, all right? Our neurotransmitters are very, very fast in their transmission. However, the transmission distance of hormones is often further compared to that of neurotransmitters, right? So even though our neurotransmitters can transmit quicker, endocrine-released hormones or endocrine system-released hormones are able to travel farther into more places within our bodies. All right, so one other difference we'll target here is that hormones regulate specific organs and tissues while neurotransmitters stimulate postsynaptic neurons. So they're all about that neuron activity, all right, versus our hormones really regulating targeted organs and tissues. But again, none of this stuff operates in a vacuum because our nervous system and our neurons are deeply influencing our organs and tissues, and our organs and tissues are deeply influencing our nervous system. So now that we've got some good background, it's foundational understanding about serotonin, about its behavior as a hormone and its dual citizenship as a neurotransmitter, let's dive in into seven clinically proven ways to naturally boost and support our serotonin. Number one, one of the primary drivers of the production, mobilization, and the performance overall of serotonin is a light exposure, specifically from sunlight. Our circadian rhythms are deeply tied to light exposure. And if we're talking about the circadian rhythms, this is something very powerful and where so much of science is looking at today and really analyzing this whole new field called circadian medicine. Light exposure, again, is a huge influence on our circadian clocks within each and every one of our cells. Our biological clocks are themselves functional genes and proteins that also influence and control other genes and proteins. All right, so if we're talking about these circadian clocks within our cells, this is controlling so much about us, and it's largely influenced by light exposure. It's a major controller of these circadian clocks. Our circadian clocks control many things, including how we break down energy from our food and how we assimilate that food. It controls how strong our immune systems are. It controls a vast array of brain chemicals and cognitive behavior, cognition throughout the day, because that changes as time goes on during the day. And also it controls other substances that contribute to our mood. So those are just a few of the things that these circadian clocks are influencing. Now, human skin has an inherent serotonergic system. We have photoreceptors in our skin that pick up light, and it helps to inform our internal organs. And again, all of the trillions of cells in our bodies, our bacteria cells, which is trillions and trillions more, four times to even upwards of 10 times more bacteria cells than we have human cells. All of these are getting influenced by our skin, our fo these photoreceptors within our skin picking up light and sending data to the cells in our bodies. And also our eyes have these photoreceptors, obviously, as well. But again, our skin can see. And human skin appears to be capable of generating and triggering the production of serotonin. 
Scientists at the Baker Research Institute in Melbourne, Australia, found that regardless of the season, the turnover of serotonin in the brain was affected by the amount of sunlight on any given day. And the levels of serotonin were higher on bright days than on overcast or cloudy ones. In fact, the rate of serotonin production in the brain was directly related to the duration of bright sunlight. That's powerful stuff. Again, if we're looking at how do we optimize serotonin, we know that sunny days and sunshine is commonly associated with a good mood. Now we're looking at what are some of the behind the scenes mechanisms? What are some of the signs behind why that is? Now, another Australian study measured the levels of brain chemicals flowing directly out of the brain. And it uncovered that people had higher serotonin levels on bright sunny days than, again, on cloudy ones. But that effect remained no matter how cold or hot the weather was. So it wasn't about the temperature, it was about the light. Other autopsy studies found that people who died of non-psychiatric causes in the summer, when days are longer, tended to have higher levels of serotonin than people who died in the winter when sunlight is scarce. Now, that's just weird. All right, again, who thinks to look at this stuff to see? And it's just, it really evolves from people asking questions because that's what science really is. It's what it's all about, is having the audacity to ask questions, you know, to put forth the hypothesis and then test, go and examine the data. And again, we find out that folks who pass away during the winter months tend to have lower levels of serotonin than folks who pass away during the longer days of the summer months. So we know that sunlight has a direct impact on our body's serotonin production and performance. So what do we do? How do we leverage this? Where's the most benefit? Well, the first thing that we need to look at is setting the pace or helping to optimize our body's production of these kind of quote, daylight related hormones and neurotransmitters and the production of the evening ones. And what it appears to be is that getting some early morning sunlight, so early morning sun exposure. And this can be, again, just sunlight coming into your home. Ideally, if we can get some sunlight outdoors on our skin, it really, at the early part of the day, between, you know, when the sun rises, maybe within that first hour or two, to get some sun exposure for at least maybe 15 minutes helps to set the pace of the production and performance of all of our neurotransmitters and hormones. All right, so that early morning sun exposure really does set the pace with optimizing these circadian clocks. Again, these are clock genes located within just about every cell within our bodies. And it's regulated by our light exposure, what time of day it is. It's also regulated by our feeding cycles and many other things, but light is a major, major influence on this production. So it's helping to kind of reset things, put it on pace, for a healthy ebb and flow of our production. So if we can get that early morning sun exposure is the primary thing if we're looking at optimizing serotonin. And typically artificial light is also well noted to disrupt our circadian timing system. So why is this an issue today? Well, research published in the journal Innovations in Clinical Neuroscience revealed that exposure to sunlight during the earlier part of the day can significantly reduce cortisol levels at the end of the day, compared to being exposed to dim light or artificial light during the day. So again, 
that sun exposure helps to increase our serotonin, but it also, and this is the cool part, it helps to reduce cortisol in the evening, which helps to induce and support our sleep quality because cortisol is kind of an antithesis or, an, or, or an, a villain going up against our sleep quality. Cortisol isn't a villain inherently of itself, but if it's produced at the wrong times and in the wrong amounts, it can definitely pr be problematic for our sleep. And so this is so important. It's one of the big takeaways is that sun exposure during the day, not only does it increase serotonin during the day, but it helps to reduce cortisol in the evening. And also serotonin is a precursor for melatonin, that sleep re regulating powerful hormone that again is associated with dark cycles. So it really, again, it's the opening act. It's the, it's the hype man helping to bring melatonin on for great sleep in the evening. So the issue today is that a lot of folks aren't getting that sun exposure. They're under artificial lights all day, every day during the day, they're not getting natural sun exposure. And if they do, they're wearing sunglasses. When they finally get some sun exposure, it's too, it's too much. So we're putting on sun, sunglasses, which again, we have these photoreceptors within our eyes, you know, our retina, our, our lenses, we're taking in this, this data that helps to set all the pace for all these neurotransmitters and hormones. Not to say that you can't wear sunglasses, but if we're not getting that adequate light exposure, our, our brains, our physiology, isn't able to really sync up with nature, right? So we're wearing sunglasses during the day, and then we're on artificial light exposure through our devices in the evening, all right? So we've got so many things that are abnormal in our culture today that have never existed before, all right? If you've ever watched the show Vikings, you never once saw Ragnar Lothbrook wearing sunglasses, all right? It wasn't a thing, nor did you see his brother Rolo on an iPad in the evening, all right? They're too busy pillaging, all right? But real talk, if we're looking at, again, human evolution, the things that our genes expect of us, we have these new implements that, again, we, we get conditioned, we think they're cool, and they are. Like, it's, it's amazing that the things that we have access to today but we have to keep in mind, what is this doing to our, our DNA? What is it doing to our production of hormones and neurotransmitters? We know for certain, again, if we're just looking at the relationship between serotonin being a precursor for melatonin, researchers at Harvard University found that being on our devices in the evening, for every hour that we're on our device in the evening, we're suppressing melatonin for about 30 minutes. All right, so if we're on a device in the evening, so for say, three hours, melatonin is being suppressed from its production and its mobilization, its activity for about an hour and a half. And we can be physiologically exhausted, but that doesn't mean that we're going to sleep effectively and efficiently because if melatonin is not being produced properly and adequately, we're not going to go through our sleep cycles effectively. So again, somebody can get eight hours of unconscious time, but maybe they're only getting four or five hours of regenerative sleep quality because they're not moving in and out of that cycle effectively because of that evening abnormal artificial light exposure and not getting that light exposure, natural light exposure during the day. All right, so putting all this together, serotonin release during the day appears to help build up this term, it's called sleep pressure, which helps to nudge us to relax and to go to sleep. And this is according to scientists at Caltech, again, helping that activity to take place in the evening. So in the evening, maybe this is a time to wear the, the, the sunglasses or the blue light blocking glasses is in the evening versus during the day, all right, which is a popular thing now. A lot of folks are doing that. And we've got 
apps on our computers where we can reduce the blue light exposure, which is most signifying for our brain that, hey, I think this is daytime, right? These are more of the spectrums of light that we think about in association with sunlight, this white and blue spectrum. So it helps to cool the screen off with apps like Flux, F.LUX for our laptops and desktops. On the iPhones, they've got these built in. It comes along with the iPhone phone now. You know, it's got night shift built in to help to cool the screen off and make it more of those kind of orangish, reddish shoes that we would see through our evolution. Because if we did have any light in the evening, it was fire, right? So there's reddish, orangish hues. And if you've got an Android, there's, I mean, just even for the iPhone and Android, there's so many apps now for these things. There's Twilight and there's many others that we can install and just set those things on automatic so we can set it and forget it. Re reduce that insult that this artificial light brings in the evening because it's doing something. We got to just be honest about it. Doesn't mean we can't chill out, watch our favorite show, or you know, we can't do some work in the evening, but we got to keep this in mind. If it's a regular behavior, this could be creating some major disruption with important hormones and neurotransmitters like serotonin. All right, so we got to do this stuff more intentionally, respectfully, help to reduce artificial light disruption in the evening. Give yourself even a little bit of screen curfew time in the evening would be a great idea. And also making sure that we're getting proactively, intentionally, a little bit more natural sun exposure during the day. All right, so that's number one is sunlight. If we're talking about naturally boosting and enhancing our body's production of serotonin, number one is sunlight. Number two, and this leans in deeper into the primary place that serotonin is produced in our body, which is within our gut. Number two, influence on our body's serotonin production is food. Again, upwards of 95% of our body's serotonin is located within our gut. Serotonin is produced, as we mentioned earlier, by the enterochromaffin cells within our intestinal mucosa. And once it's released, it activates your system to increase intestinal motility, all right? So it actually, again, helps the ebb and flow of our digestive system. It keeps things, gets things moving. This is why we have a tendency for most folks to have bowel stimulation during the day and not in the evening, not while they're trying to sleep. It's like, you know, I actually, you know, I know I'm sleepy, but I actually got to go and take a little dump because of these ebb and flows and the serotonin influence within the gastrointestinal tract. Now, scientists have uncovered that the human gut itself is made of a mass of neurotissue filled with 30 different types of neurotransmitters, just like the brain. This is why the gut is often referred to as the second brain or the enteric nervous system. Technically, again, this incredible enteric nervous system consists of around 100 million neurons. This is in our belly, all right? This is in our gut. So when we talk about a gut feeling, we really need to give that a lot more credibility. And this is more than what we find as far as the, the, the concentration of neurons in our gut is more than what you find in the spinal cord and even in the peripheral nervous system itself. Really, really powerful stuff for us to really understand. So what's going on in that gut, what's going into that gut inherently has a deep impact on the activity of serotonin, the production of serotonin, the related bacteria. Researchers at Caltech actually uncovered that specific bacteria in the gut communicate with the cells that produce our sleep-related hormones and neurotransmitters. 
are mood-regulating hormones and neurotransmitters. This interaction is powerful, and so our food is a major player in this. As we noted earlier, tryptophan is one of the nine essential amino acids, and it is literally the building block for our serotonin. It's a precursor to making serotonin. Data cited in the journal Nutrients detailed how the depletion of the precursor of serotonin synthesis, which is tryptophan, has been found to increase depressive mood. In healthy subjects and subjects with prior history of depression. So if there's a deficiency in tryptophan, it can cause depression in healthy subjects and people with the history of depression. So both were analyzed clinically. Additionally, tryptophan deficiency has been found to create disruptions in our REM sleep. So we talked about this regulation and influence that serotonin has, not just being a precursor to melatonin, but a regulator of our sleep efficiency. While improving tryptophan levels, has been shown to reduce wakefulness at night and increase mental alertness after waking up in the morning. And all of this is according to a study, a separate study that was cited in the journal Nutrients. All right, so tryptophan has these incredible roles it is playing in, in relationship to serotonin, in relationship to regulating our sleep quality, our cognition, so much more. Clearly tryptophan is important in your body. This is a key, it needs copious amounts of this essential amino acid for optimal function. It really gets used for so many different things. So it can kind of get zapped from our system and we gotta be proactive at making sure that we're getting adequate amounts of tryptophan so your body can make the magic happen. Some of the best sources of tryptophan from our dietary sources include chicken, turkey, lobster. No, it's just that song, you know, chicken, turkey, never mind. Chicken, turkey, lobster, eggs, cheese, tofu, chocolate is a great source of tryptophan, spinach, pumpkin seeds, peanuts, and spirulina. Now, none of these foods, I'm not advocating for the foods, I'm just giving you some dense sources of tryptophan, okay, that, that are proven. And many of these foods are actually studied clinically to not only find the tryptophan content, but also the impacts that it has on things like behavior, mood, sleep, and more. So those are some of the the, the best sources that you're going to find, a dense source of tryptophan, many, many other foods, but that's just, I just want to, we're always about proactive, like what can I do? What can I target? What can I, what can I intentionally add in or make sure I get a little bit more of? Those are some of the foods that have specifically tryptophan in there. But here's a big key that's often not talked about in relationship to, to tryptophan. It's not just, you got tryptophan, boom, you got serotonin. It doesn't work like that. Tryptophan works with vitamin B6 and magnesium and other micronutrients to actually synthesize serotonin. So in order for that process, that magic to happen with the creation of serotonin and its ability to do things, other nutrients are involved. Nothing operates in a vacuum. So let's talk about vitamin B6 really quickly. Also known as pyridoxine, vitamin B6 is a critical cofactor in the tryptophan serotonin pathway. Some of the best food sources that we're gonna find vitamin B6 in a natural form are going to be salmon, tuna, eggs, again, chicken liver, chickpeas, spinach, sweet potato, yogurt, and avocado. These are all viable sources of B6. So again, we need some whole food, real food. Food first is the premise, because again, we're looking at what do our genes expect from us? We don't want to just target isolated compounds 
and synthetic supplements. We want whole food, if we're using supplements, we want whole food concentrates that have a plethora of these different nutrients and cofactors that again, work together synergistically. So we wanna make sure we're getting adequate amounts of tryptophan, B6, and what about magnesium? Magnesium is responsible for over 650 biochemical processes that we know about. So that means there's 650 things that require in your body, your body's metabolic performance requires magnesium for them to do. If you're deficient in magnesium, your body literally can't do almost 700 processes or do them efficiently and effectively. The human body is incredible in doing patchwork jobs and finding a way to survive. But if we're talking about thriving, magnesium is incredibly important. One of the major roles that magnesium plays is in that conversion process with helping to create and regulate the activity of certain hormones and neurotransmitters. That's why magnesium is so valuable, specifically in serotonin synthesis. Excellent dietary sources of magnesium include avocados, pumpkin seeds, almonds, dark chocolate, leafy greens, tofu, black beans, fatty fish, and spirulina. Now, if you notice, some of these foods have multiple of these precursors, right? So spirulina, if we're talking about specifically, great source of tryptophan and of magnesium as well. So this would be one of those foods, like we can knock multiple things out in one go. And also spirulina is rich in B vitamins and rare compounds like phycocyanin, which has been found to stimulate something called stem cell genesis. So the creation of new stem cells, the list goes on and on. Really, really potent superfood. Like when you use the term superfood, I use that very conscientiously and carefully. I don't use that for a lot of foods, but when it has so many different compounds like this, and also spirulina is a rare plant source that's a complete protein as well. It's actually the most protein dense food ever discovered. It's about 71% protein by weight. So spirulina. But if you combine spirulina with chlorella, which is also a, a dense source of chlorophyll, thus where it got its name, which is rich in these amino acids as well, if we're looking at tryptophan, you know, we've got AFA, blue-green algae, the list goes on and on. But spirulina and chlorella specifically, remarkable. And for me, these are not necessarily easy on-ramps for people going from, you know, McDonald's fries to here's some spirulina for you. But this is why I love the green juice blend from Organifi is that number one, it tastes good. Number two, it's built on these incredible superfoods like spirulina, like chlorella, like ashwagandha, and it actually tastes good as well. So we get this infusion of all these different nutrients. This is why folks tend to feel so good when they're utilizing Organifi's green juice. So if you've yet to, to get Organifi's green juice, or if you need to re-up, you get a 20% discount off their green juice formula. It's incredible. And it's organic. This is the key as well, because you don't want to get these incredible superfoods that come along with pesticides and herbicides and rodenticides and things that can throw off this serotonin pathway. So head over there, check them out. It's Organifi.com forward slash model. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash model. And you get 20% off everything that they carry. Their green juice formula is definitely a must. Now, something really interesting that I found in the data is that eating something that is carbohydrate dominant after a multi-hour fast, so when somebody consumes something that's a carbohydrate dominant food, it has been found to increase the entry of tryptophan into the brain. But here's the key, adequate tryptophan has to be present in the first place for it to do this. 
because as soon as protein is consumed, the tryptophan boost going into the brain and correlating serotonin goes back to baseline. So having a little carbohydrate treat, this might be one of the reasons the driving forces behind that is that it gives an instant uptick in tryptophan getting into the brain and triggering serotonin production. Again, this feel good vibe. So I want you to put that in your back pocket because that might be a reason why we are attracted to, you know, little treats and things like that. But we also want to keep in mind that this is, an, is not a sustainable thing to do very often because, again, tryptophan has to be there in the first place. This is why we want to have an overall strong dietary performance and overall strong dietary view and then utilizing little things like this when we need to in different contexts because everything is an option. But now we can start to give a little bit more sense and credibility to the, the feel-good aspect of folks you know, wanting to have a little treat, you know, a donut or, you know, a muffin or a pancake or whatever the case might be, you know, some chips, you know, so going for those carbohydrate foods could be to get that little instant feel good vibe that can be a potential outpicturing from that. But again, it's not necessarily a sustainable thing to do because we want to get our bodies in homeostasis where we have a good ebb and flow of serotonin production. And the primary building block of that is getting healthy, high-quality sources of tryptophan. Now, here's something else really interesting, is that serotonin itself has been found in some specific foods. Using highly specific radioenzymatic assay, it was determined that fruits with a notable serotonin concentration include plantains, pineapples, bananas, and kiwis. Then a few foods in the category of nuts were found to have notable amounts of serotonin as well, including butternuts, not to be mistaken with butternut squash, but there are some nuts called butternuts, black walnuts, English walnuts, and pecans or pecans, you know, depending on how bougie you are. All right. So those foods actually have serotonin within them. Now, here's the key. Does this actually, the ingestion of these serotonin containing foods, does this have an impact on our serotonin levels? Well, in the study, ingestion of these fruits and nuts resulted in an increase in urinary 5-hydroxyindolacetic acid excretion with no change in platelet serotonin concentrations. So we did see that there was more excretion of a byproduct of serotonin, which is interesting, but there were no changes in platelet serotonin concentrations. But again, serotonin can be measured and found in many different ways. So I would say that this is a little bit inconclusive, but it's interesting, again, to keep these in our back pocket, that these specific foods contain some serotonin. Really, really interesting. The best bet, again, is eating plenty of foods with the serotonin precursor, tryptophan, and its cofactors, and letting your body to do the rest to actually make the magic happen. So that's number two on our list of seven natural ways to enhance our production and performance of serotonin. Let's move on to number three. Number three on our list of the seven ways to naturally increase our serotonin is exercise. Many people are aware of the mood-enhancing benefits that exercise delivers. From endorphins to the endocannabinoids, our bodies can respond to physical activities in ways that decrease pain and increase pleasure, both physically and mentally. 
If feeling good is a byproduct of exercise, then it would seem likely that serotonin would be in the mix somewhere. But how does it work? Well, according to a collaborative study from scientists at multiple universities titled Neuromodulation of Exercise, it appears that aerobic exercise specifically increases tryptophan's chances of crossing the blood-brain barrier. And so this is one of the major reasons that exercise has the potential to increase serotonin in the brain. Now, to dig into this further, a pilot study, and this was published in 2013, set out to see if the serotonin-boosting effects of exercise could show up notably for women with fibromyalgia. So this is a situation of chronic pain where it's very hard to target what is the underlying mechanism here. But with this study, the researchers split the women into two groups. One group was instructed to walk for exercise three times each week for 20 weeks, while the other group was instructed to do three sessions of stretching each week for the same 20-week period. Now, they measured the participants' serum levels of serotonin and its main metabolite, 5-hydroxyindolacetic acid, or 5-HIAA, or 5 hia After compiling the study data over the course of the study, serum levels of both serotonin and 5 hia changed significantly in the aerobic exercise group during the 20-week course of therapy. While the stretching group was observed to have no statistically significant change. So something's happening here. Something really good's happening. Additionally, the aerobic conditioning group also showed improvement in emotional and psychological aspects of their condition, whereas stretching did not. In the same study subjects, pain reduction was more responsive to the aerobic activity than to stretching. So their pain was reduced. Their emotional and psychological stress and struggle was reduced as well by implementing some simple walking a few times a week. The scientists in the study noted, quote, it appears that the serotonergic system may be an important modulator of the neuroendocrinological mechanisms through which aerobic exercise can reduce pain, reduce anxiety, and depression, unquote. They also noted some benefits with other exercise implements as well during the study. The researchers stated, quote, it was demonstrated that patients with chronic lumbar pain, that spinal stabilization exercises produce an increase in serum serotonin levels, which could help to explain the positive results of this type of exercise in the management of chronic back pain, unquote. So they're seeing doing these stability exercises for their core, increasing serotonin, and also decreasing symptoms of back pain. So this is really fascinating data. Again, more needs to be done. This was just a pilot study, but it's very encouraging. And these are things that we all know. Again, what do our genes expect us to do, right? Walking is one of the most human things that we can participate in. It's what we're designed to do. And so to see these benefits with reducing pain, having a, a healthier disposition with our, with our mental health, the list goes on and on. Seen through walking should not be a surprise, but it's just another way that we can target and naturally increase our body's production of serotonin. Because the bottom line here, 
does exercise defend against issues like depression that are commonly tied to serotonin expression? Well, a massive meta-analysis, and this was published in Frontiers in Pharmacology, determined that exercise is often just as effective as antidepressants in reducing the symptoms of depression. The researchers stated, quote, based on the present review, which examined most or all randomized controlled trials published in 1999 through 2016, and most or all meta-analyses and systematic reviews published in 2009 through 2016, it can be stated that exercise is an evidence-based medicine for depression, unquote. Why is this not being prescribed? And when it is, that's the exception and not the rule. Again, the data should be obvious, should be Captain Obvious, that exercise would make us feel good. Many folks who are struggling with mental health challenges, and you know, this is something that has ties within my, my own family and people that are very close to me growing up, people that I've lost from issues related to this. These things are not added to the equation very often. They're not propped up. Again, when we talk about a study like this showing that it's just as effective as antidepressants. And then there was other data here that antidepressant along with exercise, you would see that the antidepressant effects would be on point or, 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 or working or advantageous up until the exercise is complete, just post-exercise window, but then the depression would, the symptoms would come back, come back forward, would make their appearance again. So again, even the studies that found when they're looking at antidepressants versus exercise, even when they're put together, we see that the exercise has a power that the synthetic implement does not. So we've got to keep that in context because again, what is this synthetic implement? What are the ramifications? How is it? Because nothing is operating in a vacuum. These side effects that we see, for some people, it's appropriate. If we're talking about just the context of an SSRI, for example, but we've got to do the things first. These should be the first cards to play, not down the line and not as an adjunct, the first thing should be, how do we get our systems back in balance? How do we achieve homeostasis? How do you provide your DNA with the things that is required for the healthy expression of your cells, with the healthy expression of your endocrine system, your organs, your tissues? Your genes expect you to do these things. And when we are removed from these things, like movement, like walking, like exercise, we put in this category of exercise, that's just life. We call it exercise, it's just living because we naturally would be em employed in, in, in what we call exercise through our evolution, with the procuring of our food, with taking care of our children, you know, with hunting, with creating shelter and all these different things that would be a normal part of our lives. We don't do that stuff, so we've got to replicate it in different ways. You know, we hit the gym to try to replicate the things that these inputs that our bodies would be looking for, right? Whether it's the a squat or whether it's a hip hinge and all these different things. But again, the most important tenet here, if we're talking about exercise and serotonin, we've got data on walking. We know that it is an effective adjunct here. All right, so that's number three on our list. We're gonna move on to number four on our list of seven ways to naturally boost our serotonin levels. Number four is massage. A meta-analysis conducted by researchers at the University of Miami School of Medicine revealed that massage therapy boosts serotonin by an average of 28%. In addition, they noted massage can also reduce cortisol levels by an average of about 31%. 
we know it feels good. We know a good massage. Again, like I think we all can agree that after getting a good massage, we don't have feelings that are geared towards negative outcomes, you know, wanting to fight somebody or, you know, just feeling discombobulated. It tends to bring us back into balance. It tends to be very relaxing. We know some of the underlying mechanisms now are a reduction in cortisol and increase in serotonin. Now, a massage therapist is great, but it's definitely not the only way. Human touch itself is a powerful inducer of this feel-good hormone slash neurotransmitter, serotonin. Another randomized controlled trial published in 2004 analyzed the effects of massage on 84 pregnant women with depression versus standard prenatal care that did not include massage. The women in the massage group received 20 minutes of massage therapy from their significant other twice a week. Now, at the end of the study, this was a 16-week study, the women in the massage therapy group had significantly higher increases in serotonin levels and lower levels of cortisol. There it is again. And here's the key. What are the outpicturing of these things? What did it, what did it contribute to in their lives? Well, the women in the massage therapy group reported lower levels of anxiety and lower levels of depression. And they also experienced less leg and back pain. And their babies had lower incidence of prematurity and low birth weight. That's the power of touch. It's the power. Again, serotonin is just one of the mechanisms that we're looking at here. But so how do we take advantage of this? Book yourself a massage. You know, things are different now here as this is getting recorded. We're coming out of the the, the lockdowns here in the United States, or maybe we're in between them. I don't know. But there was a time when if you was trying to get a massage, the therapist, she's got the, the double gloves on. She's got the, you know, the mask. You're trying to get a massage. You got the mask on and your face is into the little face tube and you got a mask. So you're basically, you know, choking and trying to get a massage at the same time. It's just not a good look. All right. And then I, I don't know how the plastic would feel with the, with the rubbing either. But anyways, you can book yourself a massage, a normal massage now, I think, depending on where you live, or recruit your family members, you know, give and receive, you know, so even your kids, like get your kids to work, you like, you know, massage your, you know, get a nice shoulder massage, foot massage, massage your arms, wherever. If you got multiple kids, you turn yourself into the, you know, the king of the world or the queen of the world and have those little ones get to work, all right? Um, but also, of course, giving that, uh, massage as well for your significant other and, you know, just the people that you care about. Human touch is critical. It's one of the things that we, our genes expect from us. All right. So let's move on to number five on our list. Number five on our list of the seven ways to naturally increase our serotonin levels. Number five is laughter. A 2015 peer-reviewed study titled Effect and Path Analysis of Laughter Therapy on Serotonin, Depression, and Quality of Life in middle-aged women. This study detailed how laughter directly increases our serotonin production. And in fact, participants with the most severe cases of depression had the highest increase in serotonin from the laughter therapy. Now, you might be wondering, what the hell is laughter therapy? Well, the participants were given a variety of different forms of laughter therapy, ranging from smiling exercises to laughing actions without making a sound. That's probably weird, and that can just be funny in the first place. 
to laughing while saying affirmations, laughing meditations, and more. And the thing is, laughing meditations have been utilized for centuries. It's another thing that my mother-in-law taught me many, many years ago. You know, she's been teaching meditation for decades and so many different forms of meditation that she's gifted me with. And one of them is a laughing meditation. And the funny thing about it is that laughter has immense benefits that are noted. It's one of those things that we, we, we feel and, and we experience and we feel good, but this also has some, some scientific affirmation now that we now understand. Laughter also improves brain connectivity, whole brain learning, whole brain patterning, where you're, you're, the two hemispheres of your brain are like communicating and integrating better. Also, we see improvements in not just serotonin, but also boosting endorphins and also improving the cardiovascular system. Laughter has so many different benefits. This is why, again, it's one of those things that our genes expect from us. It feels good and it drives so many positive behaviors in our systems. Now, the question is, and I want you to ask yourself, how often do you laugh? How often do you spend time with people who make you smile and make you laugh? This is something that you deserve. You deserve to have relationships like that, that keep you smiling, that invoke laughter. And laughter, the thing about it is that it's also clinically proven, which it shouldn't be just a clinical proven for us to understand this. Laughter also has been found to strengthen social bonds and connection. All right, again, that would seem obvious, but it's like a primal wiring that takes place. And this is one of the reasons that laughter is contagious. Like if you see somebody who is truly caught up in the rapture of a deep laugh, like a deep belly laugh, it's funny. Like we can't, it's just kind of like you laugh and giggle as well. Just like, what the hell are they laughing about? It's funny, right? So it's contagious. It's one of those things our mirror neurons are watching like, hey, I, I, I feel you. I see where you're at. You're caught up in the rapture. You're in that bliss. I see you, right? So employing this and taking advantage of this, give yourself permission to hang around with people who make you smile and make you laugh more often. You deserve that. Give yourself permission, write a permission slip, write an intention, create that for yourself. You deserve it. And also, how else can you employ this a little bit more often just in your day-to-day -day life? You could, you know, Make it an intention to follow people who make you laugh, you know, on social media, watch funny movies. You know, there's tends to be a, a big helping of very serious things. There's a lot of true crime. There's a lot of serious, people love the cult documentaries, the serial killers, all of that. You gotta laugh too, all right? Because that shit ain't funny, all right? But seriously, you know, just having some, a healthy, not to see, by the way, I know some people listening like, I'm totally into the cult things. Like, uh, Sean, you have no idea. That's all good. You could be into the, the cult documentaries, but now we can just make an intention to also add in some stuff that makes you laugh. All right, maybe it's some retro stuff. You know, I was just with my friend, Bedros Koulian, who's been a guest on the show, and, and his wife, and they were talking about their kids now, 13 and 15, have just been binging Office, The Office. They're just obsessed with The Office. And... You know, like you could be some retro stuff like that, like stuff that maybe you used to watch back in the day that you really loved and enjoyed, or, you know, just different movies. You know, there's so many different comedy series, stand up comedians. We've got stand up entertainment on tap today if you've got YouTube. Uh, also, you can make it a point to go to a comedy show, you know, buy some tickets as well. The funny thing is, funny thing, you hear me? 
the restaurant that we went to just last night was actually attached to the improv here in California. All right. So, you know, it's just like, and I saw people going in, I'm like, oh, okay. I, I, I was feeling that vibe because I knew I was going to do the show today. Like, yeah, they're about to get that serotonin boost. So that's it. And also, of course, a big tenet that we could take into our lives overall, lighten up, lighten up. See more of the humor in life itself because, I mean, so some of the greatest comedy is just coming from things that aren't necessarily funny, but just funny observations within them. You know, so lighten up, have see through the lens of a little bit more humor, and these are all things that we can employ to bring about higher levels of serotonin, more laughter, more happiness. All right, we're going to move on to number six here on our list of seven ways to boost serotonin naturally. Number six, and this one was really interesting, is caffeine. All right, caffeine has been found to increase the receptors in our bodies, receptors for serotonin upwards of 30%. Caffeine appears to increase serotonin sensitivity. Now, this is huge right here. Caffeine appears to increase serotonin sensitivity. When serotonin sensitivity is increased, it's sort of like installing a bigger satellite to essentially catch more of the existing serotonin signal, right? So it's that, it's that dish network. So it's a bigger dish to catch the, the, the signals that serotonin is already expressing. Now, this is one of the ways that coffee has attractive benefits that we often, most folks don't even realize that this is why and this is happening underneath the surface. But there's diminishing returns with this as well. You're not just going to be, you know, guzzling Java and then getting these serotonin upticks and then, you know, it's all fine and dandy. You just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. Because this intake of caffeine from coffee and other sources can also block the performance of other neurotransmitters like GABA, for example, that plays a critical role in maintaining homeostasis. So it's just keeping things in balance. Knowing that serotonin can aid in intestinal motility, again, the ebb and flow, the movement of our digestive system, this could also be one of the primary reasons that coffee stimulates bowel movements for many people. Now, if you think about that aspect of it as well. So that's another little interesting uh, hypothesis. As a matter of fact, a study published in the European Journal of Gastroenterology and Hepatology uncovered that caffeinated coffee stimulated movement in the colon about 25% more than decaffeinated versions of coffee. So there's something there to the caffeine helping things move. It's not just the coffee itself and the compounds there, but the caffeine is a role player. And so not only do we see the benefits with the increase in serotonin, which is really interesting that I don't think a lot of folks realize with coffee. Again, the important thing here is the sourcing. You don't want to have something that enhances serotonin, but also the intake of pesticide residues, moles, things that can suppress and damage these pathways, your serotonin and receptors and the list goes on and on. Because a lot of folks don't realize pesticides are often estrogenic or neurogenic. All right, so they're operating, targeting our endocrine system or our nervous system. That's what the pesticides do. They're designed to do that. All right, so with that said, make sure that it's organic. And for me, I want to take it to another level. So I enjoy organic coffee along with medicinal mushrooms that have proven cognitive benefits like lion's mane. With folks at the University of Malaya, these researchers found that lion's mane can actually help to increase neurogenesis, stimulating the, cre the creation of new neurons in the brain. Remarkable. My organic coffee 
and Lion's Mane combination is from Four Sigmatic, who do a dual extraction of these medicinal mushrooms to actually get the triterpenes out, to get the beta-glucans out, to get all the compounds that do all these cool things. So if you're not utilizing Four Sigmatic, you are really, really missing out. Head over to foursigmatic.com forward slash model. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash model and get their organic lion's mane coffee. And also they have a lion's mane elixir itself if you're not a fan of coffee. So everybody's included here. And they also have a coffee blend with cordyceps, which has many benefits for the cardiovascular system, for stamina and performance. Head over there, check them out, foursigmatic.com forward slash model. You're going to get a special discount, 10% off, 15% off, depending on how many of their products that you get. Pop over there, check them out. Very, very special, foursigmatic.com forward slash model. All right, we're at our very last one of our seven ways that are clinically proven to increase our serotonin. And number seven is fasting. A study cited in the peer-reviewed journal, Neurology International, sought out to see if fasting had any impact on neurotransmitters like serotonin and neurotrophins like BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. As a control, the scientists tracked participants' levels of these neurochemicals prior to a structured sunup to sundown fasting during Ramadan. With their baseline numbers in hand, participants' levels of vital neurochemicals were then measured at day 14 and at day 29 of their fast. By day 14, their serotonin levels jumped up by over 33% on average. And by day 29 of their fast, serotonin levels jumped up a total of 43% higher than at their baseline pre-intermittent fasting levels. Not to mention, so we see this impressive increase in serotonin during this time of fasting, but not to mention there was also an almost 50% increase in brain-derived neurotropic factor by day 29 of their intermittent fasting from sunup to sundown, right? In brain-derived neurotrophic factor, we're looking at something that increases, again, the production of new neurons, new brain cells. Specifically, if we look at the hippocampus, the memory center of the brain, this is like miracle grow in a sense, for our brain cells. So the continuous ability for our bodies to make these compounds helps to keep us younger, longer, helps to keep our brains younger, longer. And also this association with Serotonin is incredibly powerful because intermittent fasting is one of those big implements today that many folks are talking about. You know, I've been studying probably for about 10 years now, all the different clinical benefits. But in this context, we're talking about a potential improvement in cognitive performance, in mood, in overall behavior, and just that, again, more positive disposition that's associated with serotonin that we might be able to access with a little bit of intermittent fasting. So does this have to be something super regimented and structured and like if you go outside of your eating window or fasting window you know it, it's everything is just thrown out the window intermittent fasting window eating window thrown out the window you feel me no we don't want to be neurotic like that all right so a simple 12-hour fasting window has been shown to have some really interesting clinical benefits so simply ending we'll just say for example we have our last meal and we finish eating by 8 p.m and then we have our first nutrition implement you know if we're talking about caloric food intake at 8 a.m. the next day. But in between time, you can even get up and have some green tea. You can have some coffee, right? And that doesn't pull you out of that intermittent fast. So again, there's many different ways to employ some intermittent fasting. You know, there's certain forms of intermittent fasting where 
you know, folks consume food one day, then the next day they have a limited caloric intake. So they're going from day to day or just the, you know, regimented eating and fasting windows each day. Some people do a structured multi-day fast and they eat other days, many different ways to go about it. But for me, I want to go with what's most accessible with what has the most grace and also the most science behind it as well. So this is one of the tenets that I talk about in my latest book, Eat Smarter. And if you don't have a copy yet, you're really, really missing out. So it's a national bestseller. And we talk about something outside of the normal paradigm of intermittent fasting. And we dive in on what smart intermittent fasting is and all those tenets. And we dive even deeper into the science because we're just looking at the benefits here with serotonin. You know, we can get into the conversation about autophagy that we talk about in the book, the conversation around metabolism, how does that impact, you know, issues like weight loss and the elimination of body fat, so much more to behold there. So definitely check out Eat Smarter if you've yet to do so. And again, I'm really, really grateful for you tuning into the show today. It's such an honor to be able to create these master classes for you. I hope that you learned a tremendous amount about this powerful neurotransmitter slash hormone, the implications that it has in our lives, and also some clinically proven ways that we can increase the production and performance of serotonin in our bodies. We've got some powerful masterclasses and incredible guests coming up for you very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk to you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.